Da-da-da-da-da-da! This episode is brought to you by Business BFFs, a podcast about being a creative entrepreneur run by SM Biko and Claire C. Marshall. Samantha Biko also provides editorial services through SM Biko Publishing and is also an author of young adult fantasy. Her most recent book, Scion of the Fox, is the first of a trilogy called The Realms of Ancient, whose sequel will be out in September 2018. Attention, citizens. It's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. We have a triple threat guest here for the third time. Samantha Biko, and then I also have my long-suffering co-host, Justin (laughs) Curry, here with us today. Uh, Sam is an author uh, and an editor and an impresario of the book community here in Winnipeg. Sure. So she's going to talk to us about a few different things today. And just to start off, Sam, Mm. last time you were here, you talked about the beginning of launching your book. I sure did. Yeah. You want to tell us about that? How long ago was that? So it was only a couple months, right? Yeah. It feels like a hundred years because it's over already. It's over already. Wow. It's and the, when done. we talked, you told us how important those first <clears throat> few months mm-hmm. of a book launch are. Right. Are they over now, those important months? Uh, they are, although it's kind of like, you know, catching the tail end. And I'm in a unique situation because I'm launching the sequel very soon. So the production on that has already, um, is already wrapping up. So you're so, going to ride the wave a little bit. Right. So I have the opportunity to maybe extend that a bit because it's like, oh, I'm capitalizing on the next book coming out. But then what came before the next book that's coming out? So, oh, and that book already exists. So we can uh, we can talk about that too. Um, but yeah, so actually probably my, my upcoming event is next week. I'm going to the Ontario Library Association Super Conference to do a signing uh, and ooh. to talk. Have you ever been to that, Justin? No. Have not. Teach us a yeah. wise. Teach you the ways. Um, uh, well, I guess a tiny little segue is that some people don't really know that library sales and courting your librarians is actually extremely important. Um, and it's often overlooked uh, because it's just it's a wide network. It's difficult to get into or to access unless you have a distributor or you have a salesperson on your team who is just focused on doing library sales or you have a strategy in place. But library sales are more golden than bookstore sales. Um, non-returnable market that's mm-hmm. right yes. which i'm sure you guys have talked about a lot in the comics um, we are side yeah the comic it. book you know dear listeners the direct market in comics is a non-returnable market mm-hmm. meaning that stores order the copies and then they can't send them back meaning a sale is a sale but a regular bookstore <laughs> can order 100 copies of your book and then send back 99 well, yeah we've heard horror stories of 750 books going out and everything seems hunky-dory a couple months later 600 books come back. Yeah. That's right, because there's no onus for the bookstore to actually put them on the shelves. No. Um, they just kind of... And, and that that's um, a tactic that has sunk publishers, many publishers. Um, and, and, you know, listener, it sounds like, oh, well, bookstores are evil. But, I mean, honestly, <laughs> bookstores, um, especially the ones that are on the moderate or indie level, are not making a ton of money. Um, it's, it's, usually, it's the larger conglomerates that are to blame for this because they get the deeper discounts because, you know, when a bookstore orders a book from a publisher, they're getting it for 45 to 50% off already. Right. So uh, there's already a lot of in-cutting. And that whole 
you know, consignment system, uh, which is publishing is one of the only industries still that operates on that, uh, came out in the Depression, which was was an, an effort to preserve books. And, and now leads to depression. Yeah. <laughs> isn't that just hunky-dory? Like perfect circle. Um, but I mean, the whole great thing about libraries is that it's an accessible system for all. Um, you know, if you can't afford to buy my book, you can go to the library and purchase it. And in Canada, I'll receive a royalty from that. Um, from the government. Um, library sales, like we said, are non-returnable. And actually, they will order more because there's more usage turnover. So, you know, they take if someone takes up my book 10 times and the book wears out, they have to reorder it again. Right. Um, which is a, why my book is printed in hardcover, because the library um, world likes hardcovers because they last longer. Mm. So there's all these levels and different levels of things. But um, libraries have been so extremely supportive of my work. Um, and I've, you know, developed relationships with them by like, through social media has been a huge thing. Um, and I actually developed a lot of promotional materials that were just freebies to be sent to libraries to thank them. And they remember that. Um, and so I hooked up with a lot of other library associations, like the Manitoba Library Association. I gave them a bunch of free stuff. The Ontario Library Association, that's why they're inviting me to their conference, because I developed free prints that I sent to them to one of their previous conferences that went in all of their goodie bags. Um, and they love that stuff, because then it can go out to their communities as like little gifty things. So, so how many in Canada, <laughs> in this network of libraries, how many libraries are we talking about? Roughly. We won't quote you on that or oh, man. start I, a Reddit thread no, to I can't, disprove I can't really statement. tell you that because every single province operates with their own association. And so each province has an association? Yes. So there's an Ontario one, Saskatchewan, Alberta, etc. Um, and is, is there then a national library conference as well? Now, I actually looked into this and I think um, that association doesn't really exist or is in a transitionary period. So a lot of them are independently. So I've just been contacting these library associations individually and asking them if they want stuff. So what does that contact look like? Is it's it literally like just going to the, uh, the website and if they have a contact form or if they have an email and saying, hey, I'm an author of young adult fantasy i had a book that just came out recently and i have a bunch of freebie materials like coloring sheets and prints would your library like some see ya wait a minute are you suggesting that an author can work really hard on their own to increase their own sales sure am gregory Come on. <laughs> that's not how it's supposed to work sam well unfortunately um if you really want to get the best bang for your buck you really do have to pound the pavement yourself um and you know to be fair i have also been working in book publishing for eight years so i have an insight into what goes behind the curtain as an author and i know what to ask for and what's appropriate for me to just go out and do and to be honest my publisher is um relieved that i have that initiative but a lot of authors don't have that. Um, so I, whenever I go and like do talks at conferences and stuff to directly to writers and to authors, it's always just trying to encourage them. Like, you know, you are able to go outside the box and do your own thing. Your publisher will support you. And in fact, they want to support you because they don't have very many resources because you're not their only author oftentimes. So I imagine like a lot of people, once they get signed with a publisher, they think, okay, I'm done now. Right. I just have to finish the book and then everything else is taken care of. The old right? ivory tower. Yeah. And yeah. it's, it's not that at all. It's That's not, no. why I usually recommend like self publishing a book before really going like re really trying to find a publisher because mm -hmm. you learn everything that you're going, like you still have to do all those things with a publisher. It's like right. book university. Yeah. You, you need to learn that book. on your own and then it'll be so much better for you and your publisher once you get signed. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, because then your expectations, um, maybe they're a little more realistic. And then because of that, you can adapt to making your launch the best it can be based on that knowledge. So it's not necessarily like you're being undermined by your publisher. It's just that even, you know, people that I've spoken to are published with Tor or Random House or um, HarperCollins, you know, they are putting out hundreds of books a year. And they do have, you know, a bigger team and a bigger budget. Um, but they are still very excited when an author is like, oh, I have all these connections here, here, and here, and I'm going to mine those. Mm-hmm. Um, because the publisher often is just, you know, just strapped for time and energy. So publishing is great. So we love it. Great and powerful Oz Mm. sitting behind your curtain with all this knowledge about how it really works. And I'm really small. So when the curtain like (laughs) the reveal, it's like, oh, God, such power in such a tiny frame. Um, You also have been on the other side um, from the standpoint of being a substantive editor, not Mm -hmm. just the person that checks the spelling, but the person who says, oh, my God, your story needs a lot of help. Mm-hmm. Um, you just say, mm-hmm, as if that's so simple and easy. No, it's just because there's so many things I have to say about being an editor. But really? But do go on. <laughs> okay, so um, what is something that doesn't come up very often that you wish people knew about substantive editing? Well, it's kind of encapsulated in how you um, preface that when you were like, oh, it's just it's not just checking the spelling. So I have had I have had a lot of independent clients I've worked for I've worked for publishing houses, but I've also worked for self-published people who are just like, I have a book and I'd like it to go out and be published. And I sit down with them and I explain to them, okay, if you want to hire me as an editor, there are different ways and different approaches that I can do to this. And it's all dependent on what you want and your comfort level. So there is the proofreading level where I'm just giving it a read and I'm checking for mechanics and all of the stuff that actually makes a book readable. Um, And that's like my very base sort of... It's we like worked together pass. on Rust and Water with that. I did, yeah, yeah, where I'm just, you know, just checking to make sure spelling. And if there's something else that I catch, like an inconsistency, I'll point it out. I'm not going to be punitive and be like, well, you didn't hire me to point that out. So uh, <laughs> you're on your own, pal. Um, the next one is a copy edit, which is a bit deeper. It's a bit more um, structural, but it's still only a couple of passes. And it's still looking for those mechanics and inconsistencies. Then there's a substantive edit which is the deep structural elbows in line edit where you know you're just pulling everything out and you're suggesting cuts and you're suggesting like this doesn't work here for that character and this could go here and you really should maybe consider starting your beginning like of your book um, a little stronger and a little more punchy and maybe you should delete this character altogether and it's very very in-depth and I've had people hire me to do that and they expect the proofread instead even though I sat down with them and So I have a question. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about how sort of while you were speaking there, how to like a good analogy of that in filmmaking, Mm -hmm. right? Director comes in, we'll call all the shots, we'll get as much as they can. And then there's another person who often comes in and does the edit of the film, right? Often it's the director, but it isn't always. Sometimes to save a movie, they bring in an editor who looks (laughs) at all the existing footage and then can put it together in a way that saves the movie. In fact, there was a there was a little documentary clip about how editing, the editing process is what saved Star Wars, the right. first film. Yeah. 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 Absolutely just, true. Just was passed around recently. Um, but it's just kind of like that second set of eyes, right? You know, like the director or the writer is really entrenched in telling their story and um, in all of the ways that they plan to do it. And when you have someone else come in from the outside who just kind of has a 
like a non-subjective perspective and they can say well this is a good story but here are all the different ways that you could fix it to make it a little better and make it clearer for someone on the outside for someone who isn't close and some people uh, work really well with that and a lot of people don't everything's fine now let's say i'm uh mr peabody and i have my new science fiction epic do you have a bow tie or are you wearing a tweed blazer with um leather perfect mr peabody has <laughs> my a, uh, a tweed <laughs> blazer and a bow tie and he is really confident that he has written the next um lord of the rings in space mm-hmm. um, but he has no experience in publishing whatsoever mm-hmm. and here's this podcast and says oh my maybe i need a sam to help me with my book. Mm-hmm. How do they reach you? What is the best? What's step one in that process? Is it a cold e- cold call, cold email, a tweet? I mean, yeah, like a lot, I get, I get client um, recommendations from all sorts of places. So mostly my website, um, people will just Google me or they'll just Google editor, Winnipeg Editor Canada, and I show up um, because I have information on what I do and books I've worked on um, on there, and people will just send me like through my contact form, and then I'll just rec- I'll just give them the list of here are all the things that I can do for you. And um, I've actually done a lot of, um, there's another level you can do too called a reader's report. It's literally just me doing a book report on your book where someone will send me their book and I will read it and I won't touch it at all but I'll be making notes as I'm going through it. And then I send them mm. a book Oh, that's report. super clever. Okay, so Mr. Peabody has received your reader report, mm-hmm. right? Let's say for the sake of argument that his book is sprawling, it has too many characters, mm-hmm. and there's lots of good stuff in it, but it just doesn't come together as a story. He's been mm-hmm. working on this for 10 years. He wants to put every single idea in there. Yes. Mm-hmm. They're We've all met precious. versions of Mr. Peabody in many mm-hmm. And I've worked with him You've so often. <laughs> so now Mr. Peabody's novel could be saved. Mm-hmm. Let's assume that this particular Mr. Peabody, there's a good book in there. Mm-hmm. How do you minor. break it to them? Uh, you just have to be really blunt. And I mean, uh, it takes it takes many years of developing um, an editor voice that is uh, you're there to be constructive, not hurtful. Um, but I'll be hurt no matter what if I'm Mr. Peabody. I know, won't exactly. I? Yeah. And I mean, I've been in where Mr. Peabody is. I've written a book where I it's perfect and none of it needs changing. And I've been slammed against the wall for it. Oh, yeah. And instead of receding into my Peabody shell, <laughs> I turned my other cheek and said, all right, let me look at this um, subjectively, which takes a lot of, um, it takes a lot of developing coping mechanisms in general with life but you have to always remember that any of these editorial suggestions are made with your best with your story at heart with your best intentions of making it the best it can be and if there is a book in there and you want it to come out um, and you want to help that person that'll show through you know your report or through any other comments that you make I bet that hurts a lot more too with we we always meet a lot of people who just have the one book or the mm-hmm. one story that they want to tell. And once that's done, they're done, they're right? Done, like they yeah. think that's it, right? They put their hopes and dreams into yeah, this Yeah, it's all in that one basket. So making changes on that, I imagine, hurts a lot. Like whereas I've kind of noticed, like I love all the stories that I'm developing, but I'm much... Uh, I'm much more uh, like versatile with them now because I know okay, yeah, we can make all these changes here because it's not as, they're still precious, but they're not as precious anymore. I have all these other stepping stone books coming up. And so good moments that you pull out of one book, you can put in a pile and make a different That idea is not going to work with this book, but yeah. I have six books later, mm-hmm. it's going to work there. So for I don't sure. need to be... And you yeah. only learn that 
And the ability to, to deal with that um, as you grow as a writer, you, you, maybe you did spend 10 years on that one book um, and it's over, but you know, yeah, yeah, you can't really think that, that it is over, mm-hmm. you know, there's so much time and there's so many room, there's so much room to do other things. Um, so, you know, when I am providing feedback to someone, I have had the responses of, they won't reply to me for months. And then when they do, they're like, oh, well, I didn't really know how to deal with that at the time. Or I had to take on extra sessions with my therapist. Um, or they've written me long letters like, I'm so sorry I disappointed you. And that now, and especially when it's someone that's like a friend of yours and you're so, like, it has nothing okay. to do with that. Have you ever felt like you're in the position where that author, that new author, mm-hmm. is just asking for permission oh, to write oh, like this? Oh, yeah. And you know what? Uh, I don't give anyone permission. I have had to, I have had to work with clients who give me manuscripts that are rife with inappropriate stuff for whatever genre they're trying to pull off. Um, that they're just doing it for a shock value. That it has no absolutely no merit. That it's damaging to their narrative. And I have no qualms about pointing it out. And they will oftentimes respond to me with an essay length reason of why it should be in there and often these are independently published people and I'm like well you know what in the end you can choose do whatever you want but um, I still have more experience than you and have read widely more of this thing that you're trying to do and if I've noticed it someone else is going to right Um, but in the end it is up to them and sometimes and once I had a major editorial client where I rewrote his entire book. It was 480 pages because he just didn't understand the mechanics of how to write. And he received all my notes and they were extensive. And he said, well, I just rejected all your changes and I'm just gonna do it how I want, but here's your money. And I was like, well, I mean, fine. (laughs) So somewhere in a box is a much better version version of that book. In the ether somewhere. (laughs) Okay, so a person listening to this who's not familiar with the process, it could sound like you're saying I know more about writing about in your style than you do and I think it's good for dear listener to know that we have to separate editing Mm -hmm. and the creative process is a different thing so you're comparing it to hundreds of books within the same genre that you've read or edited rather than saying then I I think a book should be this no and um and often actually before I became an editor I read so many think pieces back when I was 18 or 19, about being an editor, about how uh, people were always very prickly about having an editor because they felt that there was another person coming in trying to um, impress their own vision on your vision. It is scary. And it it is very scary. scary. And um, a good editor, and I'm not saying all editors are angels. There are some who do do that. You have their own agenda, and they're trying to uh, push it on a book that they've been given. Um, But a good editor will go into it um, maybe with their own idea of, well, here's this book, and it's not the way that I maybe would have done it, but I can't really think in those terms. I have to think in terms of the mechanics sometimes of like space and time or how you're issuing blocking to characters. So you just kind of have to think about you know, tools rather than ideas. Um, and you can always, as an editor, feel free to suggest like, oh, well, you know, I was expecting it to go in this direction, and you don't have to do that, but I'm just, you know, I'm just saying it because that was me as a reader looking at this work um, and you can make that suggestion and the you have to work with the author to see if maybe it is a good direction for them to go or maybe you know just if they want to go with their gut then that's fine but you have to be supportive of the material too um, well and I don't know if you remember this but when you were looking over uh, you were doing edits on Midnight City mm-hmm. and I was turning in the second volume and talking about where the third would go and I had lost the thread 
of my Lovecraftian influence. And it was starting to turn into more of a superhero, like they might win. Well, you're also just, you're sitting in a room by yourself working on this. You yeah. kind of get like, you know, blinders on. Yeah. Totally. You, it's yeah. hard to see the, the whole I've picture. I've in love with the characters in a way that was doing a disservice to the tone of the story. And you were like, no, Greg. Everyone should die at the end. <laughs> in no uncertain right? terms. And it was just no uncertain terms. You're like, no, if they're, spoiler alert, if you're going to be true to the, to the, to the uh, course that you set out at the beginning, you can't have a happy ending. And I, that bought, like, I, I kind of, it stewed, I stewed on that for a while. <laughs> but then when I realized that you weren't saying what your idea that you presented here for the third volume is bad, you simply said, based on what you set up, Mm-hmm. something that's truer to what you already set up is this and you know you were right and so and you no and also with, with the caveat of you can choose to go that direction or not you did yeah it wasn't like it do wasn't this like do else. it greg and because <laughs> and in that situation that wasn't an independently published book that was me working as um uh someone for a publishing company yeah. so you know and that's another thing to consider that when you are published there is a certain vision that maybe the publisher or the company themselves are might try to impress to the editorial process right. and you are bound by um, certain things that you do have to do or maybe consider way more than you would um, with an independent edit um, because it's really uh, you are the publisher if you're independently publishing um, so yeah the editorial process is it's made me grow substantially as a writer I would say and I tweeted about this yesterday and you're like we're gonna talk about this today and that's actually how this conversation came up but I said that uh as a writer I figured I could never be an editor because I'd been reading all those think pieces like oh you know what if I what if I'm impressing the things that I want as a writer onto other writers and that's not right and that's not fair um but I've actually found like through doing it over several eight years and probably like 150 plus books later um it's it's had such a profound effect on me that relationship that you develop with another writer as an editor um you know when you're you're deep into their vision and you know you're both experiencing it at the same time in a parallel and it's just so exciting and it's so great um so that it actually helped me as a writer develop a better relationship with my editors too um because on this past book that just came out there were three of them on this one book and i've never had to do that before oh yeah um and but it was just it's just such a a really neat experience to be a part of ideas that people are so profoundly in love with um and to just and to try to help to make it the best it can be gentlemen we can rebuild him we have the technology with graphic novels Mm. um especially like the way i've been working the writing and the artwork are kind of developing alongside each other. And then a lot of times the writing is almost like the, the writing on top comes last. So if I were to do, if I were to, to get an editor involved with my next book, where along the process, like from roughs to thumbnails to storyboards to getting like pages finished, like where should an editor get involved? Because if it's at the very end and all that like all the mm-hmm. paintings been done already that's you know it's a it's a lot of work not that writing is not a lot of work but you know mm-hmm. uh where where should the editor it's get involved it's easier to rewrite a sentence than it is to to re-block, re-block an entire scene yeah. of illustration i mean from my experience doing comic and graphic novel editing i would say at least like it was different with greg because greg was kind of already 
I also just was like, just Greg, I just trust you. Just go. Um, but with mistake <laughs> number one, with, <laughs> with other clients, like with um, script and thumbnails, is probably where I would start because, and even when you're scripting, you're also blocking out where everyone is, um, and the writing is pr whatever is in that script. It's not what's going to be in the published final version because there will be times when you will have done all the painting and you've put the writing on top of it and you're like, wow, it doesn't actually fit there anymore. You can just cut it out. Um, and just always remember that you can be flexible with that kind of stuff. Um, but like you said, it's a lot more difficult to, um, to change when you're like, oh, I painted it all and inked it all and oh, it's all done. Yeah, and that character like, has to be alive. Yeah, she's, and it's like, oh no. Um, and then, yeah, it'll give you a chance at the script stage to be like, oh, well, but you have this character doing this one thing, but that doesn't coincide with what he did over there. And then you know, you aren't caught in like an inconsistency that you can't draw your way out of towards the end. Like we, I just um, co-edited um, an anthology for Bedside Press, uh, Gothic Tales of Haunted Love, and all of the work in that anthology was all original. But we were there every single step of the way. They had to hand in their script first, and then we would do edits on the script. And once the script was approved, um, they would go into thumbs, and then we would approve thumbs, and then we would approve pencils. And then by the time they were at pencils, it was like, I mean, inks and colors, like that's pretty much going to be the end of it. And then um, we would go over again when it was final at the type, the typesetting stage, just to make sure that um, there wasn't, there were instances like, oh, there's text just floating over there and there's no speech bubble. Or that text got cut out at this one stage of the editorial. So just want to remind you, it shouldn't be in there. Mm -hmm. um, or if there were spelling errors or that kind of thing. How do you keep, how many people were in that anthology? There were 20. 20 oh. stories? There were 20 stories. And often, and basically, it was usually a team that came forward um, that proposed their story. Right. So they just, we were just pitched stories um, and that's how we accepted them. So like maybe two or three people f involved in each story. It was, it was came to be like, okay, there was usually two people. Sometimes right. it would be one writer and we would pair them with an artist. Right. Um, so you had at least the, the, what I'm getting here driving to is mm -hmm. you had 40, maybe 50 or 60 people. Plus we would have to sometimes hire colorists and the typesetter. So and now you got 70 anchors. people. Yeah, sure. So you're trying to keep, if someone wants to do your job, mm -hmm. You're basically a project manager. You're yeah, corralling how, all these What people. is something that you can say to them about how to manage something? Like, Justin and I can barely manage each other and this dog in the studio, <laughs> right? How do you keep 70 people? You have to just do it project by project. You have to keep it in kind of like a microcosm and just kind of, you know, have a chart of, uh, well, first of all, spreadsheets are your friend. Hmm. Um, and just kind of, you know, know who's on what team, being you're constantly checking in with where they are and you're just always making lists and you're just always trying to keep up with it. And yeah, you know, with that many people, you are going to miss things with when you have a small staff and very few resources. Um, but you know, in the end, somehow miraculously it did come together. Um, but you have to also set very hard deadlines. You also just can't just let people run roughshod over you. Cause that's another thing. It's like, Oh, well they're trying to manage all these 70 people. Maybe I can get away with X, right. Y, and Z. Yeah. And there were unfortunately some people who thought that, and they just kept asking for extensions, extensions when they had four or five months to complete their thing. And we had to cut them because right. we were like, you know, we can't make our printing deadline. So we have to say no to you now, which is a, which is unfortunate because the, so those teams went out of their way to a year ago, pitch us their story right. with their sketches and their concepts. And at the finish line, they were, they just didn't do it. And it was, it's very unfortunate because a lot, there were, there were some great stories that we just had to say, well, we're not delaying publication because you 
couldn't get your eggs in your basket. Just a very nice way of saying that. I didn't say it that way. I said it many more superlative curse words. And uh, <laughs> To yourself. But to then to them, you send a Very professional, wordy sternly wordy. Yeah. yeah, you just also just have to be really realistic. That's uh, another thing. Um, okay, so, it, you know, you've got 70 people that you're managing for this project. <laughs> you just I'm look so stressed out. right now because, like, you're managing 70 people. And that wasn't my only project. And this is what I was going to... And you are not... You are um, the opposite of a lazy person. You've got lots of things going on. How do you... But also you have creative outputs. Like, it's one thing if everything is project managing mm -hmm. to me, right? You're just more of the same. But for you, you have to switch gears and work on a creative project now knowing that some other savage editor is going to kick your project around mm -hmm. the way you did to somebody else's and ours right justin and ours still hurts <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, sorry <laughs> how uh how do you manage that oh man like tell me a day a day in the life every single day is different there is just at the end of pretty much every day you make a list of the things you didn't get done so that you can front load doing them the next day and uh, then the next day you wake up and you've got five urgent emails from different people that had nothing to do with that first list. And you have to add them to the top, especially depending on if it's priority. You're going to have to reshuffle all those things on the list. Um, and you just do your best. Get up in the morning. You get down to your desk. You try and do the little things that will like maintain you until your lunch break, which you have to self-enforce. Um, and it's tough because you can sit down at that desk and you can stay there for eight, nine, ten hours without having moved unless you have the discipline to be like, I have to get up and get some circulation in my legs um, and just also back away from this because I'm getting very upset and frustrated because of, you know, trying to herd these cats and they're not going anywhere. <laughs> Is that um, why you took up boxing? <laughs> I've been boxing for a long time and uh, it helps to mitigate some things, <laughs> but it's not a cure-all. <laughs> Hey, Justin, maybe this is the time to ask. Would would you two be open to a celebrity boxing match? No. For charity? I've, I've never For actually, charity. like, I've sparred, but not properly sparred. And I know Sam has. And, and also, like, we're... So we're, she would kick your ass. She would kick my ass, yes. Also, we're not in remotely in similar weight classes. So it just wouldn't... But on the street, that doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> on the street. Don't go outside, because I'll be there waiting. Um. Okay, we'll table that discussion until Justin's had more practice with yeah. his guard. I, I really like boxing for the exercise, but it is a very different ball game when somebody's actually trying to hit you in the oh, face. And, and I, yeah. I haven't done much of that. I, just enough to know that it's it's a whole other thing. Yeah, when they, people give you shark eyes and they just come for you and they know they have you. And you're like, well, I had a good run. Okay, well, is this a good metaphor? This is the extended metaphor of publishing, isn't mm -hmm. it? Right? Like writing for exercise versus writing for competition, right? Well, and the thing about boxing is it's, um, it's a very strategic game. You're constantly having to learn how to very quickly analyze your opponent and what resources you're going to be putting into um, getting under their guard. And it's like a dance. It's actually a very like, graceful sport in a very bizarre way, especially when they slow it down and they teach it to you. And it's the same with balancing your... And just like the ballet, sometimes there's blood. Yeah. Oh, God, there's so much blood and broken bones and everyone just <laughs> trying to smile through the, the horror show as you're trying to make it look effortless. In and that's or boxing. In Both. all of it, <laughs> Both. you know, Both. especially <laughs> except in boxing, there's all those like head injuries. OK, and sometimes you get knocked down. So let's pull this metaphor around. Actually, I really like the um, the analogy. I don't know where I heard it it's, uh, years ago. Um, 
a book is like a boxer. You you sit in the gym and you train and train and train, but once it's out into the world, you've done all you can do and it's up to that book now. It's up to that boxer. Oh, you just mm-hmm. trained it. You just trained it. You were the trainer, right? And so once it's out there, it's you've done your it's thing. It's got to do its own yeah. thing. You can't decide yeah. whether it's good. That's well, and it's, it's got to basically take whatever you put into it. I like the thought that making a book is like a Rocky montage in the studio. <laughs> I just I just pictured like a little 2D book with like little boxing gloves just running <laughs> down the street. All right. <laughs> webcomic. All of us race to the yeah. make that But it's webcomic. true because once it's out there, like you can't really do anything else with it. It's mm-hmm. done. It's a done deal. Maybe if it gets reprinted, you can change, <laughs> change like a, where some periods are and some commas. But I mean, mm-hmm. it is it is what it is. Do you ever have misplaced rage, sadness, remorse, or aggression leveled at you after a book has come out? Like if we hadn't made those changes, people would like it. No. It must be your fault. Not yet. Not yet. But I have... Yeah. After I 150, you're doing pretty good then. No, uh, no, it's, it's, been, it's been okay. Um, I mean, and there, the thing with a book or any creative project, I'm sure you guys understand that with art as well, is you could keep working on it and working on it and working on it until you're a skeleton with a beard. And uh, then it has never come out. Um, there is a point where you have to say, I have to let it go. And in retrospect, you can read it over or maybe look at a painting and be like, oh, right. I didn't do that. I missed this. Oh, my set God. Set a print deadline. Deadlines don't don't work on it no. until it's finished. Sent a, set a print deadline. And, and then it's finished. Yeah. And then that's it. And um, yeah, if there were mistakes and you do a reprint, sure. Or if you're an artist, you can just pull that print and maybe redo it and re-release it. Sure. But there are, um, there are infinitesimal directions you can take a story. Um, and everyone is going to have a different perspective. Every editor is going to have different hang-ups. Um, and every writer is going to have different things that are important to them. Uh, but, you know, you just have to tell the story that you always, that was delivered by the intent of it. And then get it out there. And then it's done. And then if you didn't like it, then you just move on and write a different story. Um, I mean, I will publish a book and I just don't read it ever again. Because <laughs> I'm just like, I'm a different person now. I know I'm human. Some of you are still human. Reprinting. Yep. So I've I had this conversation a couple times recently. Um, when you print a book, there's a large fee associated with setup of that book, mm-hmm. right? And it's it's a big chunk of money. Um, and if things go well and that book sells out, you get to reprint the book, and that large chunk of money is then waived because they've set it up before. Yeah. Right. Um, so we're approaching reprinting one of our books because things went well, which is great. But you get to change 15% of your book when you go to reprint. The, the printer will allow you to change some things in that reprint without charging you setup fee again. So have you done some reprinting? And if so, did you make those, that 15% of changes? We're looking for yeah. free advice from normally a right. well-paid editor right now. <laughs> of course. That's why we have her here, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. So, uh, yeah. so, dear listener, basically what happens, you send your book in. And um, if you have to, say you have done all the setup, and then it's like, oh, no, we have to replace that page. It's like 50 bucks a page mm-hmm. extra every single time you make a change. And when you're doing a, a period, re- if it's a period, it's still like $50. It's still $50 right? because yeah. they still have to put have to reinsert a different page and honestly they're just doing it using like a pdf fixer on their <laughs> end but yeah. they're charging setup fee because they had to have someone change that pdf um so yeah it is very it's very challenging but i've had to do different things as a publisher um where it was like oh the book sold out just really really quickly and we just really need to refulfill orders so we'll just reprint whatever that file is in there and then just like okay yep, just go get it done and then they just reprint it and then when you do have to do make all of those changes and 
oftentimes it's more than 15 percent yeah because if your book is 500 pages that's not very much <laughs> so you, you don't you don't have a lot of leeway technical questions well if you go past the 15 percent, do they charge you like per page again or is that setup fee kind of reintroduced they're they're charging you per page again mostly okay so it like, still shouldn't be quite as much as that initial setup fee right hopefully yeah hopefully yeah. and again it depends on how much you're changing yeah, and, and the then but but then then it's not a second printing it's a second edition yeah it's, okay. you know it's a different book then and then you have to label it as such um but yeah there's just there's just you're gonna be nickel and dimes a lot but if you have a really good relationship with your printer um don't ever feel bad about asking for stuff. Um, for years, uh, we didn't know this until I just started asking, like Webcom, for instance. They would give me a quote on a book, and I'd be like, yeah, can you go 20 cents below that per unit? And most of the time, they say yes. They just, they have a lot of space to do a lot of haggling and wiggle room, but people just think, oh, that quote is set in stone. So mm -hmm. I don't really have. Interesting the power of a printed page for people not to ask for a different amount. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they think that's just the way things cost. And I mean, to be fair, paper prices have gone up. A lot of paper, um, major paper suppliers have actually gone out of business recently, right. which have mm. kind of... Yeah, I've been keeping track of that too. Get yeah. Um, and so it's just, and a lot of people are conglomerizing and then things are just going up and it is affecting, you know, basic stock that people are using. One really so. good way to uh, negotiate on the price that mm -hmm. we've found is to sit down with them and ask them is there a time that printing this book would be more convenient for you in order to lower our price? Mm -hmm. So they'll slide, they can slide the printing time into a time when that machine is normally idle, but they still have to pay people to run it and maintain it. But now if it's full of actual printing job, mm -hmm. they're happy to give you a bit of a discount if you're willing to move your release date. Yeah, and that is something, again, you always have to consider is are they booked up? Did you yeah. schedule mm -hmm. enough in advance? Um, and if you're late, say, on a book, you can get a 10-day turnaround. Just will cost you an extra $500 plus dollars no. or right. more. Um, well, yeah, it's just <laughs> like when you're an independent publisher and you know the stab of every single dollar, yeah. <laughs> it's painful. Yeah. Do you um, want to tell your bookmark story? With the, the bookmark printers? story? Okay, this is a good close yeah, yeah. out. Okay. So first, before I tell my bookmark story, what I'm sensing here is that maybe there's a lot of people who don't understand all the hands that are involved in passing that book along in the big bucket before they throw it on the fire, right? To try, right? <laughs> that was a bad analogy. Let's not books? burn books. I was thinking more like how firemen form in a bucket brigade and everyone works together to stop a horrible catastrophe. But it's a bad analogy because in the end, it's a big fire and you don't want to throw your and, book in a and fire. And also, <laughs> equating your book with a horrible <laughs> catastrophe. <laughs> Feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah. But there's a lot of hands. How many people would you say are involved from the distributor, like from the author to the actual retailer? Oh, my God. Uh immeasurable uncountable it takes a village to raise that book like i would say it's not like, dozens it's hundreds it's hundreds it is in the hundreds especially if you're with a publisher that has a distributor all the warehousing the driving the packing the shipping the buying the salespeople going with their little suitcase in their little territory bookstore to bookstore with a catalog telling what books the bookstore has to purchase because I've also worked as a bookseller having to take those sales meetings um, and then you know the bookseller having to enter it into their receiving and then having to hand sell it like and that's just the book selling part that doesn't include the Amazons the ebooks the um, all of that all the librarians so that's uh, potentially now 
Thousands. Thousands. And then it, it's the readers. The readers going on Goodreads or Amazon reviewing your work so that other people will buy them. They're doing the work, too, for you. So it is an enormous village to, um, to get your book you know, out there, recognized. Um, so you write it, and you think that's it, like Justin said. And it's no, no. Get out of your tower. Get out of your tower. It's where the work starts. Um, the book was the easiest part and the most <laughs> enjoyable. <laughs> it's hard to hear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you know, while you're reading that book, you might need a bookmark. And so we figured out, well, we were printing, of, printing books. So back in my misspent youth, when I was first starting making comics, mm-hmm. um, my friend Ryan Bartel brought me to uh, the print shop that he worked at. And he, we made an agreement with his boss that we could work in the print shop after hours, pay only for materials. He could teach me how to do some stuff. Ryan knew his way around all the machines, uh, so it wasn't a safety issue. And the boss just said, listen, you know, you guys want to learn how to do this stuff? Then you do it. You pay for your materials, and that's fine. If you want to do it, you know, at the front counter during business hours, it costs you X. If you want to do it yourself, it just costs you materials. And since I was just starting out and I wanted to know how it all worked, this is great. And the thing that really, really bothered me was that when you're trimming a comic down, there is so much waste. Like an astronomical amount of paper is just thrown away. And you were doing, that was small scale. And that was small scale. And I was just, and so, but it costs the same to print that full page. And so I started suggesting that what if we printed uh, you know, because you're promoting a book, you want to have postcards, you want to have bookmarks, you want to have all this stuff. I s- started having us lay all that stuff out in the trim area mm-hmm. so that the stuff is that's normally garbage, right? That's Instead right. became our bookmarks and mm-hmm. our postcards. And rather than sweep it into the garbage, we swept it into a box and then handed out at shows. And it, to me, felt like this great cost-saving thing. So when we started printing with a major printer, I asked them about doing that. They said they'd never done it before. I showed them our layout files. They said, yeah, that's great. You know, instead of, you know, 20 cents for each of these, we'll charge you two cents and we'll just collect the, collect the stuff. Now they offer it as a service. Now they suggest that everybody do this. Mm-hmm. And I felt like we've done our little part. Um, but I also feel like I deserve a royalty on all <laughs> of those. Some kind of reward. Some kind of reward. Yeah. Maybe just a pat on the back knowing that a little bit less of our books ended up in the landfills. Because mm-hmm. just because it's the way things are done doesn't mean it you know, can't change. Well, on that wise note, dear listeners, this has been Super Pulp Science, and this is Gregory Kamichuk uh, reminding you that you should join the fight and make comics. <laughs>